0: the bible from 30,000 feet soaring through the scripture from genesis to revelation would you please turn in your bibles to the book of second john before us tonight we have second john third john and jude three of these short little books because they are short uh, even though this is an overview from 30,000 feet, it allows us to practically cover every verse. Not all of them, but but we'll be able to um, to uh, probably read most of them. This morning, um, I grabbed off my bookshelf a book that I've had for years because it was recommended uh, by Samuel Rutherford. Now, I'm not expecting you to know who he is. He was a pastor from the 16 hundreds in Scotland. And uh, he was basically arrested and kicked out of his ministry because he was outspoken. Um, And the church at that time was already run by the government, as it is even to this day uh, in that country. And um, he, little Samuel Rutherford, and I say little, he was a short wee little man, as they say in Scotland, but very bold and uh, a godly preacher. Uh, He preached at a little village called Anwath uh, in Scotland. Uh, Most people don't even know where that is. And then also Edinburgh, most people know where that is. But he was kicked out of ministry by the church government, the government-run church. And um, he was uh, placed up in Aberdeen, way up north, because he spoke out against the archbishop's weak doctrine and teaching. Now, I say most people don't know who he is or know much about his preaching, but the one book that survives by him that is worth getting if you have a few extra dollars and you find it, especially at a used bookstore, uh, are the letters of Samuel Rutherford. The letters of... It's just correspondence. It's hundreds of letters that he wrote to individuals. And they're priceless because you get an insight into what people were going with and how this man, though he couldn't do public ministry uh, in preaching, how he cared and was able to extend his ministry through the writing of letters. And I pulled it off my bookshelf. I, I have a paperback version I bought years ago. And it just reminds me when I read that little book of letters, it reminds me of these three letters that are before us, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Little letters that pack a huge punch. Um, 2 John and 3 John are two of the five books written by the apostle John. And they're so small that people even wondered, why are they even in the Bible? It's, it's so tiny, it's almost a, a worthless thing to put it in the Bible until you read it. And you find out that big things come in small packages. Um, in antiquity, in ancient times, most Greco-Roman correspondence letters were from an individual to an individual, person to person, and were very short. And so Second John and Third John fit that profile. Second John is written to the elect lady and her family. I'll explain that in a minute. The third John is written to a, an individual by the name of Gaius. And so ancient letters were short, about 300 words. Second John has 301 words. In English, 245 in the Greek language, so it's a very short letter, and it's individualized. All written by the Apostle John. We covered a longer book of his last week, First John, and now we look at second and Third John, which, I have to admit, are among the most neglected books in the New Testament. Not many people spend much time in second or third John. But they should. Because once again, like 1 John, John the Apostle is older. In fact, he introduces himself as the elder. And that meant not only was he superintending a number of congregations, but he was older in age. We believe he died around age 94. In A.D. 100, he was in his mid-90s. But he's older now, and he has wisdom. And he has... um, a real focus on certain important truths, and he has, he has by now learned to say a lot in just a few words. So what is Second John all about? It's about truth that's the theme of second John truth. Truth is mentioned five times repeated the word repeated five times in thirteen verses. Not just truth. But to be more specific, the theme of 2 John is loving the truth. Loving the truth. Now keep in mind, like we mentioned last week, there was a group that had infiltrated local congregations and they had a doctrine called Gnosticism. I explained Gnosticism a little bit more in depth last time, so I won't get into it except for one particular part of, of this epistle. But because Gnosticism was infiltrating the church, the only thing that made Gnosticism worse was the openness that believers had toward Gnosticism. That's what made it spread. It's one thing to have false doctrine, it's another thing when you have people who don't have much discernment and they welcome anything and everything, and it, it spreads. So um, if you are hospitable to the wrong kind of people, it can actually be your undoing and the church's undoing. You are aiding and abetting false teaching. Because of that, John, in just a few words, 13 verses, uh, talks about that. So it's about loving the truth, loving the truth. True love requires loving the truth. That sums up 2 John. True love requires loving the truth. If you're going to really show love, your love has to be balanced by truth. Truth and love are not to be separated. They are always to go together. If your love has no boundaries, that is, you just sort of indiscriminately are open to anything and everything, and you just say everybody's entitled to their opinion, and I'm going to accept their opinion as their truth, and another person's opinion as their truth, and not challenge it or dialogue about it, then you have no boundaries on your love, and according to John, it's not a good thing. It's actually a hurtful thing. So, it begins, verse 1, Second John, the elder, again, John is probably around 90 or in his 90s when he writes this. So he he is an older gentleman, uh, the elder, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. So notice, in four verses, five times, truth is mentioned. It is underscored. You need to love truth. True love requires love for the truth. I've often felt that Christian love is greatly misunderstood. Sometimes the world will use what they know to be a commandment of Jesus against us. If the world catches us not treating people like they think we should treat them, they'll say, that's what's wrong with you Christians. You don't really love people. You need to show them love. I thought you followed the Savior who taught us to love. Now, what they mean by that in the attack is that you ought to tolerate everybody and anybody's belief system. And what you believe is not as important as you tolerating everybody else instead of talking through it or speaking out against it. If you dare speak out against a lifestyle or a belief system or a notion, they want to turn it on you and say, that's unloving. Actually, it is really love. The most loving thing you can do is tell somebody the truth. And. And John always did, if you know his, his writings, especially in 1 John. But he mentions, as we said, truth five times in this section. I wonder if that notion of how Christians should just tolerate everything, let's just suppose that Elijah the prophet believed that notion. Would he confront the prophets of Baal? Wouldn't he just say, well, you prophets have your own religion and your own style and your own way, have at it. No, he challenged them to a duel, right? Battle of the gods out there on Mount Carmel or uh, the king uh, of the time, King Ahab. Elijah would not have confronted that king nor the prophets of Baal. Paul the apostle, if he believed that notion, certainly would not have shut down the Judaizers for their legalism. He would have said, oh, you know, let the best man win. And then think of Jesus. Jesus had some pretty hefty things to say uh, to people who did not speak the truth. He, He was confrontational, like when Herod Antipas wanted to see him, Jesus sort of blew him off and said, go tell that fox that I'm busy. Uh, To the religious leaders, Jesus called them uh, open sepulchers, tombs, hefty, hefty things in Matthew chapter 23. So, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received the commandment from the Father. Who the elect lady is, we are not sure. Uh, Evidently, it was some woman who probably used her home for the church to meet in at that time. And uh, some of her kids, her actual children, were believers and strong in their leadership capabilities. Some believe it's a metaphor, the elect lady for the church in general and the children being uh, church members. Um, I see it as a literal lady and literal children who were also part of the church congregation there wherever it was written or to whomever, uh, whatever place it was written to. And now, verse 5, I plead with you, lady. That sounds sort of like a crass way to talk to her, but it was a term of respect. Hey, lady, <laughs> not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, you know that's famous in John's vernacular. He told people, love one another. But we've also seen with John in 1 John and now Second John, and by the way, also in Third John, That true love is not indiscriminate. There's discernment mixed with it. So he says, verse 6, This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in. So, one of the most loving things you can do is to tell somebody the truth. It's uncomfortable to speak truth. And um, you are inclined to hold back telling people the truth. Why do you do that? Why, why are we inclined to not tell people the truth? Because we want them to like us. And humans have this incredibly nauseating penchant that says we got to try to get everybody to like us. Oh, my goodness, you'll be a miserable human being if you live that way. Think of a doctor... Looking into the eyes of a patient after reading the scans and the blood reports, knowing the patient has a week to live. And imagine the doctor looking into the eyes of the patient and saying, you're going to be dead in a week. Now somebody hearing that might say, doctor, that's a mean thing to tell somebody. You're not showing much love to tell somebody they're going to die. Well, it is the truth. And if I love that person, I want to get that person as prepared as possible in this, the last week of his or her existence. Needs to be said. The family needs to know. If I say, oh, go home, man. As your doctor, I just want to say, live long and prosper. Take two aspirin. Smile and do your best. That's not really loving them if I refuse to tell them the truth. Okay, so... If I'm dealing with a human being who, if they refuse Christ, will spend eternity in hell and I don't tell them how to get to heaven, am I really loving them by tolerating them? Not really. So truth always balances out love. You are diminishing love if you are diminishing truth. And John shows us the truth and love can go together. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And so John is doing that. Verse 8, look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things that we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. This verse seems to indicate that you can diminish your reward in heaven. Not that you won't go to heaven. You will go to heaven. You're saved by grace through faith alone, period. But that it is possible to diminish your reward eternally by refusing to stand up for the truth because of what that would cost people. So he mentions that. We want to receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, keep in mind one of the problems was an openness. Showing hospitality, bringing people in to their house churches, letting people share their belief system, including the Gnostics. And that stuff spread. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. That doesn't mean you can't bring people into your house and give them a cup of coffee and a couple cookies, and if they're unbelievers or they have disagreements with you. The idea was because churches met in homes, when you invite people into your house church and you show the same openness to them to share whatever they want to share as you would a brother or sister, you're diminishing truth. It says, Nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Last week, we covered Gnosticism a little bit. We told you the difference between Cerinthian Gnosticism and Docetic Gnosticism. I don't need to rehash that. You got that covered. That's under your belt now. But let me explain to you the worldview of the Gnostics. And to do that, I'm going to put up a slide so I can show you. The Gnostics divided the entire world into three groups, three classifications. Number one, there were the Sarkikos, and sarkakos is a Greek word that comes from the Greek root word sarx, which means the flesh or the body. Now, the sarkakos was the group that represented heathens, unbelievers. They were people who just lived for the body, appetites, just lived for the flesh. So, unredeemed humanity. They, they, were, they were the They were the irredeemables. Don't spend time on them. Second group was the pneumatikos. And that comes from the Greek word pneuma, the root word pneuma, which means spirit. And the pneumatikos were the spiritual ones, the truly spiritual ones. As opposed to the syrkikos, who lived for the flesh, the pneumatikos were the true spiritual people, in other words, them... They were the true spiritual ones. They were the only true spiritual ones, the Gnostics, because they had this superior knowledge. They had gone through the rituals and the rites and attained this level that nobody else attained. And they were worth redeeming. But there was a third group called the psuchikos, from the Greek word "suke" or mind, and they were somewhere in between the sarkikos and pneumatikos. In fact, they weren't much better than the sarkikos, but they had potential to to start at the level of the mind, the, the suke, and get raised to the highest possible level, the level of pneumaticos or Gnosticism. So when they looked at Christian congregations, they put all of the Christians in that third group, the group of uh, the sukikas. All Christian congregations had the potential. Oh, they were weird and they were wrong. They don't have the true knowledge we have, the Gnostics have. But since these Christians are allowing you to come into their houses and into their congregations, let's infiltrate them and take advantage of their hospitality. And we'll get a footing. And perhaps we can raise them up to the true spiritual level. That was happening, and John saw that as a a problem. And the openness and hospitality being shown to the wrong mindset of people would be their undoing. So that's why he says, don't let them come in. Don't don't greet them like that. It became such a problem that around AD 100, a document was circulated called the Didache. The Didache. I've shared that with you over the years. The didache means the teaching, and it refers to the teaching of the twelve, the teaching of the apostles. It was apostolic teaching on how to deal with itinerant evangelists and itinerant pastors, people who would travel and, and need the hospitality of others come into their homes and speak their false doctrine. And so because it was such a problem where churches would invite them in, this little book was written, the didache. I won't read, uh, it's not a long book, but I won't read it to you. I have a paragraph or two. No, not just really one paragraph. So it says this here's some of the quotes. If an apostle, whom in the book they call a missioner, a missioner, if an apostle comes to you, he should be welcome. If a missionary comes out uh, and he comes in, I come in the name of the Lord, then you invite him in and let him stay with you. Show him hospitality. He should be welcomed. But it says this, but if he stays more than three days, he's a false prophet. Kick him out. Because it means he's really just using you, not, not, not um, uh, taking advantage of your hospitality to move on to the next, but trying to get as much out of it as he can. It says, if anyone comes to you and speaks in a trance and says, give me money. Or anything else, like give me clothes, give me food, give me money. If somebody goes, thus says the Lord, Lord's give me a word right now. Ooh, I got a message from the Holy Spirit. The Lord says, give me money. It, these people are still around today. Um, you're to kick them out. False prophet. Everyone who comes in the name of the Lord is to be welcomed, though later you must test him and find out about him. Let him find employment. Make sure that he does not live in idleness simply on the strength of being a Christian. Don't let him just lay around in the name of the Lord. Unless he agrees to this, he is only trying to exploit Christ. Now, over the years, I have had the opportunity to protect God's sheep from would-be wolves. And I like it. I don't always like confrontation, but I, I like it when I can, I can spot a wolf or others who have discernment spot a wolf and we can nip it in the bud and protect God's sheep from, from its spreading. When I lived in California before I moved out here to start this church, I remember doing a little Bible study in a town called Garden Grove, California. It was not far from where I lived in Huntington Beach. I'd go there every week. Had a small group of people that grew and grew into a sizable group in a home. And um, I remember on a few occasions people would come and say, Thus says the Lord. He's given me a word. You need to do this for me and that for me. But on one particular occasion, this guy came in. And I remember this one gal who was in our Bible study. uh, A a, a pretty gal. She... um, was married to an unbeliever. And the unbeliever didn't want to come, but she came to Bible study every week, strengthened her in her faith. And this single guy came into our Bible study, and he would come for a couple weeks, and one night he walked up to her after the Bible study and says, you know, the Lord gave me a word. He didn't know she was married. The Lord gave me a word that you're, you're, you're to be my wife. Well, this really shook her, right because she was married and trying to win her husband to Christ and and he, and he goes no i'm i'm certain you're going to be my wife and, and so she you know showed that she had a ring and she was married and and he said well it only proves that you married the wrong person and the lord would have you leave your husband and marry me so i'm overhearing this conversation because it's still over in that side of the room and I could hear what he was saying. So, you know, I was on him like white on rice and showed him the door and showed him the left foot of fellowship really quickly. And uh, showed him hospitality with a swift spiritual kick. So John is saying, uh, whoever greets him shares in his evil deeds. Let's close out the, the letter. It says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. You know, distance only works for a little bit of time. There comes a time when you need face to face fellowship. That... You can social distance and you can watch online and that'll work okay. We flatten the curve, but I, after a while, you know, you, you can only do so much where you need to, to, to be able to, in, a, in an accountable setting, um, love one another and, and fulfill New Testament command. So he is looking forward to putting the pen and ink down and seeing her and the children, her children face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, here's an interesting footnote. According to tradition, and it's only a tradition, we don't know for sure, but according to church tradition, the elect lady that he writes to in verse 1 and 2, and her children, is Martha, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. If that tradition is true, that means the sister of the elect lady is... Mary. Now, again, we don't know, but that's tradition. So that would make verse 13 apply to Mary. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Now, before we move on to 3 John, we told you last week that the Gnostics denied either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. The Corinthian Gnostics denied the deity of Christ... The docetic Gnostics didn't believe in the humanity of Christ. So John says, you know, if you are denying that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, or that Jesus came in the flesh, if you deny he's the Son of God or you deny his humanity, that person is an antichrist. Now, it's not like John is getting old and cantankerous with, with each passing year. He remembers that's what the Lord Jesus said. For Jesus, this is now in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. It says, Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but said God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood that Jesus was claiming deity. Now, Jesus, a few verses down in verse 23 of John 5, says, That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So true love requires love for the truth, and the truth is Jesus is both God and man, God and deity and humanity, undiminished deity, unprotected humanity. Now we get to 3 John. And 3 John has 14 verses in it. 2 John had 13, so it looks longer. But in the Greek language, it is shorter. There were, there were uh, 245 Greek words in 2 John. There's like 219, I believe, is the Greek count in 3 John. Which makes 3 John the, the shortest letter in the New Testament, the shortest book in Scripture. It is also the most personal of the books. First John was written to a group of assemblies. Second John was written to a group, the elect lady and her children. Third John is written to a single person named Gaius. We'll read about him as we get into it. It says, The elder, again, that's John, the older John. Um, I didn't tell you this, but when he says, I'm an old man, I'm elder, I'm old. Um, know this, John outlived both Paul and Peter by three decades. So, you know, in terms of of, of New Testament um, longevity, he's an old dude. He's an old coot. You know, he's almost 100 years old. So the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth... Now, Gaius is a name you're familiar with, but you're probably familiar with the wrong Gaius. And some of you are going, I've never even heard that name, so I'm not familiar at all anyway. So, you just go on and not explain this, but I want to explain it. There was an associate of Paul the Apostle, mentioned in Corinthians and other places, an associate of Paul named Gaius. He was a native of Derby in, in Turkey, Asia Minor. He was an associate with Paul, served with Paul, ministered with Paul, lived in Corinth, and he was one of the two people that Paul baptized. He said, "I baptized Crispus and Gaius." Oh, and then he goes, "and the household of Stephanas," but besides that, I don't think I baptized anybody else, for Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. So he mentions Gaius. Now that Guy, or I should say that Gaius, is probably different than this Gaius. This Gaius, that's just a common New Testament name, even though you read the name go, I'm not familiar with it. It was a common name at the time. So we believe that was Paul's, a different one. This one was probably a convert of the Apostle John. A completely different one, though a common name. So he's writing to a guy that John knew who was an associate, probably a convert, named Gaius. Like Second John, Third John also focuses on truth six times. Five times was Second John. Six times in this letter he uses the word truth. So between second and third John, John mentions it eleven times. In just a few verses. So that is on his heart. Speaking of the truth. So uh, the elder, that's John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now before I, I get into that, Second John is the flip side, or Third John is the flip side of Second John. So Second John is about hospitality. You know, don't be, don't be ready to show a lavish hospitality to the wrong kind of persons who want to take advantage of the church and get their weird doctrine in. So, so if 2 John says, be careful how you show hospitality to the wrong person, Third John is saying, show hospitality to the right person. Be hospitable to, to, to the righteous ones. Um, Uh, If 2 John is about don't show um, an an openness to a false teacher, uh, 3 John says do show hospitality to a faithful teacher, a faithful person of God. And he is talking to somebody who did that. Gaius showed an open heart to the right kind of teacher. But there's also a person he mentions in this letter who did not show love and did not show hospitality to a faithful teacher or any faithful teacher of God, his name was Diotrephes, he's mentioned here. And he he says, Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence. He wanted the focus and attention all on himself. So, once again, 2 John is summed up by true love requires love for the truth. Third John is summed up by this little axiom, love for the truth requires loving truly. That is, showing love, demonstrating love in the right way to the right right group. Okay, back to our text. He says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, what you just read in verse two was a common saying in ancient letters. It's like me saying, "I hope this letter finds you well. I hope you're feeling good." Just like when you st- say bye to somebody, you say "Stay safe" or "Stay well." You know th- that it's a gr- it's a wish. What I have noticed over the years since I began my ministry is. Um, a vein of Christianity known as the health and wealth vein of Christianity that has taken verse 2 so completely out of context that it's not a um, a Christian uh, hope, but it's a guarantee, a guarantee of, of perfect health. Uh, faith teachers love to quote this. And Kenneth Copeland, who was one of, and still is, one of the main... Uh, Proponents of faith teaching theology calls this a universal promise of perfect health for the believer. They get that out of this. Hope you're well. I, I hope that you 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 are physically well as well as spiritually well. It's it's a common greeting, and he makes it a universal promise for every Christian to walk in perfect health. Well, that's as dumb. That's as ludicrous as taking another localized scripture and making it a guarantee like like in 2 Timothy when he says, um, um, go to Troas and bring the cloak that I gave to Carpus. Bring it with you when you come and the parchments and the books. So if I were to say, that's what you need to do. You need to go to Troas and you need to get that cloak and you need to bring it with you. You say, well, I, I don't even know where Troas is. And by the way, if you went to Troas today, nothing there except like a, a, a little gift shop. Uh, the, the town's defunct. There is no Troas. You, you would say, Skip, you, you can't apply that in the same way. It was a, it was a localized idea. Yes, that's what this is. So uh, I just want to, I'm doing that because I, I want to show you how these false teachers work. These false prophets work this way. They twist scripture and make a universal application out of something that is to be highly localized and not applied to every single person. So I pray, I hope, my wish is that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And and by the way, that's why they will say, if you are sick, it shows that your spiritual life is waning. Because um, your health will prosper like your soul prospers. So if your faith is waning and you don't have enough faith, that's why you're sick. Just prove that you're an unspiritual person. You're a sarkikos. It's like neo-gnosticism. For I rejoiced, verse 3, greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, that is my spiritual offspring, my children walk in truth. Once again, the the sentiment that people love to believe, because it's convenient and you're not on the spot if you believe this, is to just tolerate everybody's belief system as equal. And it doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're sincere about what you believe. And that seems to be the only criteria of what is right and wrong. Are they sincere? If they're sincere, then they must be right. That's their truth. If they're insincere, well, then they're hypocritical, and no matter what they believe. But, again, truth, truth, loving the truth, and um, uh, is, is, is important to him. So it does matter what you believe. Truth is important. Um, what, what if... What if a blind man was asking you for directions? And he happened to be standing on the edge like I will do. And I'm, I'm, I, and he's asking, which way should I go? Which, which, which direction should I go in? Now you know that if he goes straight, he's going to get hurt. He could even die. So... What if you were to say, well, it doesn't really matter which way you go as long as you're sincere. <laughs> would you consider that loving? No, I would consider that cruel. You would say, don't go straight ahead, whatever you do. Turn to the right or left or get some guidance to go backwards and have a seat till we get you some help. So it does matter what you believe because people are stepping into eternity. Don't you want to give them the right directions? Yes. Amen. So loving the truth. I have great, no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And that has been my passion. I've always loved this verse. And um, I've made it sort of a, a, not my life verse personally, but my life verse congregationally. I've always had the desire that this be the, the best fed congregation ever. In the, in the Scriptures, in the truth of God, and the, and the most loved. And if there's any legacy that I want to live, is that, that the truth of God, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation, has been declared. So I can leave this world, like Paul the Apostle, I can step out of the ministry and say, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God because I have no greater joy than to see or know that my children walk in truth. (laughs) Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So once again, these itinerant teachers and evangelists, some of them were good and godly and spoke the truth. Not all of them did like the Gnostics. But they depended on the hospitality from local believers because they're not renting hotels. They didn't have hotels like we had. It was just something you'd invite them into your house, let them stay with you for a while, unless it's like longer than three days, or they say, thus saith the Lord, give me money. But he's saying, you know, Gaius, you have done that. That has been your practice. You have treated with hospitality others who love the truth and preach the truth. But now he's going to flip the coin a little bit. He's going to pivot. And he's going to introduce us to somebody who's the opposite of Gaius named Diotrephes. Verse 9, I wrote... To the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish who wished to, putting them out of the church. Evidently, John had written a letter, a letter about how to deal with, the, with, um, with itiner- itinerant people, like the did- Didache, but not that one, but a letter about hospitality. Now, John is an apostle. He's like the last living apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You treat a guy like that with respect. And they did. Gaius did. The church did. The elect lady did. But there was one guy who did not and evidently rejected that letter of John by the name of Diatrophes and wanted nothing to do with John and didn't acknowledge John's authority as an apostle. Because acknowledging John took the limelight off himself and he wanted people to think he was awesome. He was the important one. Instead of letting John have the authority, he loved to have the preeminence. And notice (laughs) that he, what he says about him, which he does prating against us. The word prating in Greek means to bubble up. A better translation: jabbers. He jabbers. He flaps his gums. He just, yeah, right. Just, just, just. He just keeps talking, talking, talking. But there's no, no substance to it. Um, just speaking nonsense, prating against us with malicious words. And he's not just content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those uh, who wish to, that is to wish to be hospitable to uh, the brothers and and John, putting them out of the church. He would actually excommunicate people, kick people out uh, for that. Somebody once said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Diatrophes was all about Diatrophes. That's it. That was the four corners of his life. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius, verse 12, has a good testimony, so he's mentioned as a good guy doing that. Verse 13 I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write you with pen and ink. Once again, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friend greets you. Greet the friends by name. So, once again, Second John, true love requires love for the truth. Third John, love for the truth requires loving truly. Demonstrating your love, showing your love to those who are true servants of God. Now we get to the last little book for tonight. That is the book of Jude. Hey, Jude. Now, Jude, this is a contentious book. In this book, you are called to bear arms, spiritually speaking, to put up a good fight for the faith, to contend for the faith. It is written by Jude, who was Jude. Jude was the brother of James, who wrote the epistle of James and the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So he was a son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, of course, was born of Mary, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph had children of their own, and Jude, also called Judas or praise, Judah, was one of them. But here he goes by the shortened name uh, of Jude. Um. The brothers of Jesus, the family of Jesus, James, Judas, Jude, I mean this Jude, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. John chapter 7 tells us. They sort of chided him and told him to go to Jerusalem. And if he's really the Messiah, show himself and make a, make a show, a miracle. And it says, for his brothers did not believe in him. And they didn't believe in him until Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. After the resurrection, Jesus made a special appearance to his own half-brothers. The Bible tells us he appeared to 500 at a time, then he appeared to his brothers, then he appeared to the other apostles. And so it was probably at that appearance of Jesus after his death and resurrection that James and Jude placed their faith in him. If I were to give the book of Jude a name, I would call it the Acts of the Apostates. You have the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Apostates. These are uh, people that Jude is writing against in, in very direct terms. Not a whole lot of lovey dovey here like John, but just right to the point and right to the heart. And it's a call to arms, it's a call to fight. It's not what Jude started out to write. Jude, by his own admission, began to write a devotional, just a short little devo on salvation. But he was compelled to tell the church, you need to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It wasn't what I wanted to write, but I felt compelled by the Spirit of God to write that. If you're students of the New Testament, you already know this, that Jude has a lot in common with 2 Peter. In fact, many of the themes and examples are almost verbatim out of 2 Peter, uh, though done a little bit differently and certainly done with more uh, punch in the book of Jude. Um, I just want to read something else to you before we jump through it and, and read it all. It's short. Again, I know we have like nine and a half minutes, but... In Galatians, just so you know that, you know, Jude wasn't having a bad day, and that's why he wrote these strong words. I want you to listen to Paul the Apostle. This is Galatians chapter 1. He says, "...I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel." which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul was writing against a different group, legalists, Judaizers, adding to the gospel, changing the meaning of truth, still compromising and perverting the truth. But there's a principle that's the same. Listen to what he continues to write in Galatians. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now with that background, we get, we get into Jude Uh, Verse 1, Judas, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and... Preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ notice the term the faith I want you to contend for the faith what does that mean the faith is uh, a saying a phrase that means the body of Christian truth the body of Christian truth Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith or not. Uh, Paul writes and says to Timothy that in the latter times um, will come people who deny the faith. So the faith is a a couple words that mean the body of, of Christian truth. What you and I know is New Testament doctrine. What was called in Acts 2.42, the Apostles' Doctrine. That's the faith, the true faith, the true teaching of Christ. And notice he says, I wanted to write about our common salvation, but I felt it necessary to tell you to, you know, load your ammo, basically. You know, put up a good fight for the faith. Uh, Contend earnestly, that's what it means. Put up a good fight for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. And now notice this. Which was once, what? What does it say after that? Once what? Say it loud. Once for all. Once for all. What that means is, by A.D. 100, because this is written in the 90 A.D. something, 94, 95 A.D. By the first century, the body of Christian truth in its totality was deposited. There was no more truth to be added to that. So somebody says, well, you know, the church has always been wrong in, in, in the last several hundred years, and, and God has given us a new revelation, a revelation for today. It's called the Book of Mormon, or the Pearl of Great Price, or the teachings of, of Rutherford, or whatever, whatever cult it is. They're denying what this verse says, because according to Jude, the faith, the truth, was deposited once for all. I remember having this conversation with a couple Mormon missionaries up in my office. They would come every Sunday morning, and they'd sit in the front row with their ties. You know, they're only like 19, but they call themselves elder, and they're in the front row with their ties in their Book of Mormon, and, they, and I approached them, and I said, what are you, what are you guys doing here? So, oh, we've come because we just hear it's a good Bible teaching church, we want to... Hear the word. I said, great. Sit in the front row. You're welcome. Come. But don't talk to anybody about what you believe. Okay. Why? I said, well, I want to talk to you first. So I had him come in and and had several hours with him and just tried to drill this verse down. You're telling me that this is a new revelation that God gave called the Book of Mormon. And yet, how do you square that with once, for all delivered to the saints. I had him exegete this and come to the realization that I can't believe what I believe if I believe that verse. Anyway, that was quite an interesting meeting. So, um, uh, going on, he gives three examples of those who turned from the truth in the Old Testament. One, the nation of Israel, verse 5, I want to remind you that though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people, that is the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Those are that generation in the wilderness. So that's illustration number one. This is how God deals with people who turn from the truth. This is what he did in ancient Israel in the wilderness. Verse 6 is the second example. And he refers to the fallen angels of Genesis 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And now the third example are the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who had the testimony of Abraham in his life, in their lives, because... Because of Lot, his nephew. And Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. This is an interesting verse. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. I'm tempted to get into that, but I I can't. I I have to move forward. Woe to them, verse 11, woe to them, for they have run. Now here's more illustrations. They have run in the way of Cain. Right? Cain departed from the Lord by a false worship. And they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Balaam told King Balak how to seduce the children of Israel and get God to go against them by immorality. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah and those 250 men that rebelled against Moses in the Old Testament. So example after example. He drills down. He poetically talks about uh, their fate And their falseness and their false doctrine in the verses to come. Take it now down to verse 17. But you, beloved. But you, beloved. See the tender touch. Uh, I'm going to tell you how bad these false prophets are. But you, beloved. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts? These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, there it is again, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Since these apostates come in and tear down your faith, it's incumbent upon you to always be building up your faith. Keep yourselves, verse 21, in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That does not mean keep yourselves in a place where God can love you. Because I hope you know God loves you no matter what place you're at. You might be the worst person, the most ungodly person, the most sinful person, the most apostate person. God loves you. When it says keep yourself in the love of God, the idea is keep yourself in a place where you experience the love of God. That's what the Living Bible sort of translates it at. Keep yourselves in the boundaries where you are enjoying the blessing of God. So uh, the illustration I like to use is An umbrella you can be in bright sunlight and maybe you it's a spring day it's high 60s and the Sun feels so good on your face after a cold winter but then you raise an umbrella and suddenly you aren't feeling the effects of the Sun you're not keeping the Sun away you're just keeping the yourself from enjoying the Sun right So you can put up an umbrella of sin. You can put up an umbrella of something that causes you not to really experience nor enjoy the love of God. That's the idea of keep yourselves in the love of God. You're building yourself up. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. One of my favorites in Scripture. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So let's sum it up. 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. 2 John is be careful with your love to the wrong people. 3 John, be lavish with your love to the right people. And the book of Jude, love all people enough to tell them the truth. Father, thank you for the truth that is found in Scripture. It has been deposited to us once and for all. We have it. We can study it. We can apply it. We can instruct with it. We can warn with it. But Lord, I pray it would always be our appeal and our motivation that just because a person says, like in the video we saw before the service, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I follow God, that we would, we would dig under the surface a little more deeply and not just, not just take that word, but examine. Just like we are to examine ourselves, we would have discernment with our love to know how to best show it. And Sometimes the best way to show love is to rebuke. To reprove at other times it is to embrace, to forgive, to accept. but we need your wisdom to know the difference. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's worship it. Was great seeing you tonight. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.